I'd like to talk about the, uh, the lesson from the standpoint of something that we're, we all have on our mind. If you've been keeping up with the news and some things happening that we just really didn't think was going to happen this way just a few years ago. And I brought in first the yesterday's heading from the paper, Communism Tumbling into USSR. And it just seems like yesterday that uh, that was the number one force that we are we're afraid of in the world. And we were spending ourselves into bankruptcy just about trying to get up enough nuclear armaments to keep up with and to combat uh, communism and its spread throughout the world. And this has gone on for a long period of time, ever since World War II. And then all of a sudden, within the past few years, beginning with about 1985, we have seen the total crumbling of that system. And finally, the head of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, resigned the Communist Party. Some of those uh, republics over there are actually disbanding the Communist Party and outlawing it. And it literally has fell on its face. If you have to answer the question in the shortest amount, the fewest words, as to why communism wound up falling in those areas, how would you say it? Why did communism collapse? It didn't work. It didn't work. That's it. Uh, communism collapsed for one simple reason. It just simply did not work. It's interesting that uh, the media uh, devotes all of its attention to the economic part of communism that did not work. The economic side of communism was that all of the land was taken away from the individual people and all the businesses and the government owned everything and everybody worked for the government. And along with that, they, they worked through a socialist plan where everybody would always have a job and where everybody would have a similar level uh, of economic prosperity throughout the country. And we contrasted that with capitalism where individuals can buy and own land, where they operate their own businesses. Uh, on the negative side, we sometimes have unemployment, but then we also have a situation where uh, people can go have quite a bit, or they can have very little, depending on, on how much they're willing to work. And so we looked at it as a, in many ways, a great victory or contrast, and there's no question that from an economic standpoint, you can show that capitalism has definite advantages. There was more to communism than just the social part. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, there are some countries that are operating uh, with socialism and, and doing it successfully. Uh, communism started out with the belief that there is no God. Uh, Karl Marx, who uh, is the founder of communism, uh, the originator of it, had long ago rejected God in his life. Uh, Karl Marx referred to religion as the opiate of the people. In other words, it was, it was something that the people created because they needed it. They needed it to explain the things that they did not understand. They needed a supreme being. And therefore, they, they created religion and they, they created God. And so in his system, one of the first things to go was God. And thus, in Russia, for example, it was against the law to teach religion to any child under 18 years of age. You could not uh, distribute Bibles. In fact, now we're in the process of distributing Bibles by the thousands in Russia. We, we can't even get enough to satisfy the need at this point. 
because they've been for a long period of time without the Bible, without access to religious information. And so communism started off by, number one, kicking God out of the picture. And they were going to create an atheistic society. Well, in reality, Hitler had tried an atheistic society. He also kicked God out of the picture. Well, what they found out in that system was that without God, you cannot have morality. You simply cannot have a system of right and wrong that people will respect and will work if you kick God out of the picture. If God goes out, then your opinion of right and wrong is, is just like mine. And so if God went the Bible, went all of those moral standards, and then on top of that, a, an economic theory that, that was proven to have deficiencies over a period of time. But in the final analysis, it fell because it simply did not work. I'd like to read to you to start from Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. Uh, as the law was given by Moses to the people, and note the statements relative to the law, something that we have observed down uh, through our study of the Old Testament scriptures, and that is the law was given in such a vein that not only was it right, but it was inherently right. In other words, that the law would work if it was practiced. If it was not practiced, there would be natural consequences. And therefore, that any people anywhere would reap blessings in their society or in their communities or individuals uh, to the extent that they actually lived by those principles. And to the extent they did not, there would be consequences. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 28, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flock. I'm down to verse 7. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. At verse 8. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and everything you put your hand to. Verse 9. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised. I don't know, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God. Verse 11, the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. Verse 12, the Lord will open the heavens and the storehouses uh, to send rain in its season. Then he comes on down into verse 15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow the commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you. Cursed will you be in the city and cursed in the country. Uh, then he tells how they would be lacking food and, and the, the, the physical necessities of life itself. In verse 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation. And then on down to verse 45, all these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God. Well, as we proceed through the, the Old Testament, we see really this principle unfolding over and over again. First of all, when the Israelites go in to take the land of Canaan, and God made the observation that those people were so corrupt that the land would literally vomit them out. And so they went in, and God used the, the Israelite nation to pass judgment on those people. Their system simply didn't work. And then we pursue the history of Israel, and we find that 
to the extent, to the extent that as a society, that they have kings and leaders on the throne who advocate the law of Moses and who put that into practice and who set an example before the people, to that extent, Israel is blessed as a nation and as a society. But then we also see that to the extent they do not, and when they had leaders on the throne who did not respect the law, that they began to suffer all the consequences that we read about in Deuteronomy 28. Another passage we could have read from uh, is Leviticus 26. Notice the statement that uh, if you obey the law that you would not have these diseases. Uh, another statement there is Exodus 15 and verse 26. Uh, if you do obey it, you will not have these various diseases that the people of the land do. If you don't, you're going to have all these wasting diseases that they had. And we've noted before that the book by David Stern, None of These Diseases, was written by a lawyer uh, studying the health code of the law of Moses and noting many of the unhealthful practices that the pagans had. And if the Jews followed the law of Moses, for example, even though they didn't know anything about germs, they were to bathe themselves and they were to get their drinking water from running water. Uh, if anybody was sick, they practiced uh, quarantine. Uh, they were strictly regulated on their sexuality. Uh, for example, the, the pagans practiced beastology. Uh, the Jews were warned against that. The pagans practiced unrestrained sex. Uh, the Jews were warned against that. And so they've got all these regulations telling them how to clean and to bathe and how to eat and how to prepare their food. And we can contrast that uh, with the, the way the individuals lived that were operating contrary to the law. And we can see that the diseases that were common and prevalent among the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the pagan people simply were not among the Israelites. And so it wasn't a matter, we can see by looking at the health code, it wasn't a matter of them obeying God and then God stepping in in some mystical and spiritual way and causing good things to happen to them. It was a matter that the law was right. And so when they obeyed it, they reaped benefits in their own body and in their community. And on the other hand, when they deviated from it, the consequences were there. Well then, what was true of that physical law was true also of the moral laws. The moral laws are right. And if you create a society where people do not control their sexuality, where they simply do anything they want to do, if you create a society where it is, it is not considered right to be honest, uh, that a society where lying is acceptable and cheating is, is acceptable and dishonesty in various ways is acceptable, if you create a society where, where people look on one another as just so many high-class animals, well, then the end result is you're going to reap something in that society. You reap a society that literally cannot exist. It just simply will self-destruct. It cannot exist. On the other hand, when you have a society where people believe in honesty, when they believe in the rights of others, uh, when they believe in a, a certain level of integrity, when they believe that man is made in the image of God and he's very special simply because he's made in the image of God, just on those few basic principles, you create a society that has the possibility to become strong and enduring. And so we see that over and over in the history of Israel. You know, one of the interesting things to me in this uh, study, in this uh, uh, thing on communism, is their system has failed. And, and the battle cry over there now is freedom. 
And they were the, almost so strong that they were under the impression that they're going to have a utopia if they can just have freedom and democracy. In other words, the savior of that system is going to be freedom and democracy. Well, of course, we've preached that for years in our society, isn't it? that freedom and democracy, you know, that is the savior. But here's an interesting thing that is already happening over there. And let's look at our own society. We sit back and we say communism failed. And we put all the emphasis on the economics. And we say very little about the fact that communism, at its beginning, kicked God out. And they kicked the Bible out. And in the process, they kicked morality out. And they wound up with a very corrupt, morally, system. Okay, now we, we're going to look and say, as they go after democracy, and as they go after freedom, if that's all we're going to have, you think they're going to turn it around in Russia? Let's look at the United States. We are the uh, democratic envy of the world. The world envies us of our freedom. We have freedom, and we have democracy. But what's happening in our society? We're falling apart, aren't we? Uh, the crime rate is so high, we can't build enough jails. We can't hire enough policemen. What about the diseases and things? Uh, if, if we respect the, the uh, sexual principles that are, that are taught in the Bible, what happens to AIDS? It can't exist. AIDS can only exist uh, in an immoral atmosphere. Uh, that it just it cannot exist. It, it got into the human family through the practice of beastology. And then through a combination of homosexuality plus other permissive sexuality, it spread in the human family. And then once it got into the, the human family that way, the drug users have spread it even further. What happens if, if we go back in and we, we're, we're spending billions of dollars as a society to fight AIDS and we're losing? Uh, everybody that gets AIDS is going to die. Right now, there's no cure. We're losing the battle. But we're not approaching it from a moral standpoint. Morality is out the door in our society, too. God also has been kicked out. So we have a society, on the one hand, we're looking at Russia and we're saying, hey, the, the, the parousia, the utopia, is democracy and freedom. But we have democracy and we have freedom. And our society is not as strong as it was. I'm 52, we'll be almost 52. The society is not as strong as it was when I was younger. We, we, are, we have, in one generation, come from being a nation that was the greatest lending nation in the world. Everybody owed us money because we were rich and we loaned to everybody. And they owed us money. You know who the greatest debtor nation in the world is right now? the United States. Those trillions of dollars that we owe in debt, who do we owe them to? A lot of it is to the Japanese and the Arabs and others that are buying stock and buying land in, in our country. And we have gone from the greatest lender nation to the greatest debtor nation. We are so far in debt that when you pay your tax money, 12 cents on every dollar goes just to pay the interest on our debt. Not, not, not to pay anything on the debt, 12 cents on every dollar pays just the interest on the debt itself. We have reached the point in our society where 35% of our total wealth is going in taxes. 
It's still not enough, isn't it? They, they want more taxes. I was concerning what it's done to the family, just the tax situation. I was reading another article uh, the other day. I read this a few, a few weeks back. But it stated that if tax deductions for children were the same in proportion to our income now as they were a generation ago, then you should be able to deduct about seven dollars to $8,000, $7,500 to $8,000 for every dependent. Well, you can see that a lot of these people that are having problems uh, trying to support two or three children, if they could deduct that much per dependent, that would change their life completely, wouldn't it? Well, that's the way it was a generation back. So I'm saying we're paying more taxes, and much of the taxes is going to police up the consequences of sin in our society. That they're there. So what is happening? What's happened to the home? We've kicked God out, we've kicked morality, and so one out of every five children that is born in our society is the child that is, is born to an unwed mother and is unwanted. Millions of others are being killed through abortion, and we're, we're dealing with that, and millions and millions of dollars in psychological costs and all kinds of costs are involved in, in that situation. Is freedom and democracy the answer? Turn over, if you hold your place there, and flip in uh, Galatians, the uh, fifth chapter. Notice the statement that Paul makes to Christians uh, who have been set free from depending on the law for their justification before God. But he's concerned about something and this idea of freedom. Beginning with verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. Okay, verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, you will be destroyed by each other. Okay, so what does Paul say about freedom? Freedom can be misused, can it? Freedom doesn't mean you wind up doing things right. Freedom means you have the opportunity to do right things. Freedom is no guarantee of happiness. Freedom is no guarantee of success. Freedom just simply means that you have the opportunity to make choices without somebody forcing that choice on you. So to, to tell a society that you're going to be free and you have democracy doesn't guarantee anything. You see, they have the freedom to choose communism again, just like we have the freedom to choose it here. Freedom simply means you have a choice, that, that somebody's, not, somebody's not going to come along and just force choices on you. All right, our society is collapsing just as surely as that society did. Uh, I don't know how anybody can study history and study the history of this country and study the history of the world and not realize that our own society is collapsing. Just like Rome did, just like Babylon did, just like Sodom and Gomorrah did, just like the Canaanite society did, just like the Israelite society did when, when God used the Babylonians against, Babylonians against them, just like the German society did, just like the communist society, if a system does not work, it will collapse. 
And in our society, unlike theirs, we do have freedom. And we do have democracy. But freedom and democracy can only benefit us to the extent that we're going to use that freedom in a right way. And if we exercise that freedom to choose God and to choose morality, then we will benefit. And so it is in Russia. You see, they do not have the freedom to choose God in their society. I'm saying to, uh, to you from a society standpoint, they did not have the freedom to choose the morality of the Bible. That was taken away from them. Now they have freedom. And if they exercise that freedom to put their trust in God, and if they exercise that freedom to choose the morality that's laid forth in the Bible, then they as a society will begin to reap the benefits of it. And so it is with our society. If we're willing to use that freedom to choose God and to choose morality, then we can benefit. But freedom is not a utopia. Freedom guarantees absolutely nothing. Democracy simply means you have what? Freedom of choice. But what happens if you choose representatives who are immoral? Are you any better off than the... In fact, did Israel ever have a democracy? It was a, Israel was a totalitarian government. They never had a democracy. Uh, their success as a people was tied to the king believing in God's law and believing in God and the people believing that, and to the extent they put it into practice, they reap the benefits uh, as a society. I'm in Matthew, the seventh chapter. We've talked about societies and, and nations, but you and I can really, in the final analysis, only take care of of one situation. Oh, I know we've got our individual votes in our society, but the, really the only person, the only being in all the world that we really and truly control uh, is ourselves. And after the Sermon on the Mount, at the very conclusion of it, I'm beginning with verse 24 of chapter 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So what is he saying there? You look at the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is talking about how you treat your neighbor, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, love your neighbor as yourself. He talks about how to treat your enemy. And he said, you've heard it said, uh, hate your enemy and love your neighbor, but he said, that's not what I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you to love your enemy. And to do good even for your enemy, just as God allows his rain to fall on the good and the bad, and his son on the just and the unjust. He talks to him about righteousness, and he says righteousness is something that is not done to impress other people. Righteousness is something that you do because it's right and you believe in God. He talks about certain attitudes in their personality. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those that are hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Blessed are those that are persecuted for standing up for what is right. He talks to them about worry. and says, you don't have to be like the people that don't know God out here. They worry because they have nothing except them and the world. But he says, you have God. And you don't have to go through life as an anxious person that's full of worries. Seek God, seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. You don't have to go around worrying like the people that don't know God. And after talking about all these things, uh, talking about their relationship, he said, you've heard it said such and such, but I say to you concerning uh, uh, their marriage and divorce and adultery and the whole bit. And then he concludes. He knew that everybody listening to him was not going to put into practice what he said. And so he said, those of you who listen to what I say and put it into practice, you're being very wise. You're going to be comparable to the man that's built his house on the rock. When you build your house on the rock, it rains on it and the wind blows just like the guy that builds it on the sand. But the difference is your house stands. That's the only difference. You, you encounter the same problems that the other fellow does, but the difference is you just stand up. So he said, as a, as a believer, when you, when you build your life on his teaching, God's not telling you that you're going to live in a bed of roses. That bad things are not going to happen to you because of the fact you're walking with God. The worst thing that can happen happens to all of us. You're going to die. But look how you face death as opposed to the other fellow. You die, like Jack expressed in his prayer, as somebody that looks at this body as a place where you live and where you're, you're here to, to do good in the name of Christ, but death means a release of your spirit. You go to be the Lord, and, and you're actually, as an older person, saying, hey, to tell you the truth, I'd rather go and be with the Lord. And so that's the way you die, as opposed to the individual with, that dies without any hope whatsoever and dwells on the fact that he's going to have to give an, accountable, give an account for his life before the created universe. So you each face death. The person that, that puts the words into practice, the purpose of that, you each face death. But you face it in different ways. Either one of you can get cancer. Either one of you can have heart problems. But you go to the hospital with a completely different attitude. And you face it in a completely different way. As you go through life, through your marriage, and through the bringing up of your children, through dealing with others on the job, you face the same problems but you handle it in a different way. And as a result of handling it in a different way, you wind up with a different product. You wind up with something that will stand uh, as opposed to something that will not stand. In short, Christianity works. And it's the only philosophy of life. It's the only system that's ever been given to man that works. No other system works. Back to our illustration with the communist as we get ready to close out. As a result of all their consequences, there's a lot of good that's coming. You have to admire some of these older people, uh, that, like Mikhail, Garbyshev, Yeltsin, and others, 
who are devout communists at one time in their life, and what are they saying? They're saying we was, we were wrong. Okay, we were wrong. It didn't work. We're going to change. Well, what's going to happen now? If they honestly began to make some changes in the right direction, things are going to change in that country. And you may very well see, 10 years down the pike, uh, that country with all its resources become one of the greatest, maybe the greatest country on the face of the earth. Uh, they have the potential with the resources. But nothing can happen until they change. But you notice something else. Now, I've been very proud of our leaders uh, in, in many ways, like the, it, because there would have been the temptation to sit back and gloat and to put down or to rub it in their face and we haven't done it. Uh, we, we have embraced Gorbachev. We have supported him. Uh, we have supported the changes over there. And, and we just simply are glad that they have seen that it doesn't work and now things can be better for all those people. That's the right attitude. Uh, that, that really is a Christian attitude. It says something to all of us when we contemplate what Jesus said there concerning a way of life and a hope that he gives to each one of us. All of us sin. Every last one of us. We know that although they've got their problems in Russia, we're an imperfect society too. All of us sin. And it's through the consequences of sin that God wants us to see that certain ways don't work. When you reach that point in your life, whenever you reach it, and we all reach it at different times, but when you reach that point in your life where you say that, hey, I can see that God's way works. It works in the family, it works with children, it works in society, it works in individual lives, and it's the only way of life that prepares you to meet death. I can see that it works. And I want to do it God's way. That's what the Bible calls repentance. It's, it's that simple. It's a change of mind. A change of mind. Then we need to be brave enough, as the communists, that many in the Communist Party are, uh, to just simply say that I'm going to turn and I'm going to embrace this and I'm going to reap the benefits and I'm going to face death in that way. And the good news is, the good news is that although we live in a society that is head over heels in debt, and we're going to have to find a way to pay that debt. I don't know anybody out there that's going to forgive us. Do you? I don't know anybody out there that's going to forgive us our debts. You see, I, I, I own some saving bonds things too, and I'm not forgiving the government that I want my money back that I've got in there. And so do you. If you've got money in the bank out here or whatever, you, you're not letting the government off the hook on that. The good news, spiritually, is that when we reach that point in our life that we recognize that God's way is right, you don't have to pay the debt. Jesus paid it for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if you reach that, reach that point in your life where you're willing to change your way of life and turn and do it God's way, Christ is there Put your trust in that sacrifice. Allow him to forgive every mistake and blunder that you've ever made in your life and start over brand new. And walk in a relationship with him where as long as you walk in the light, the blood of Jesus will constantly cleanse you of all sin. If you're subject to the gospel message in any way, we give you the opportunity to respond. Let's together we stand and sing.